Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, welcoming you back here for another weekly market recap here at the end of the year with my good friend, financial advisor, Lance Roberts. How you doing, Lance? Well, it's Friday and it's almost over the year that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're kind of we're kind of crawling to the end zone here, but we're we're exactly. close. Limping um, is the word. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So look, the, the big thing I think we should talk about this week is uh the Fed. Um, so we had the last Fed uh, meeting of the year. Uh, Jerome Powell came out the other day. Um, and I want to give you props. Lance did pretty much what uh, you uh, predicted last week that he would do, was that the markets were getting their party on um, kind of uh, prematurely, we'll say, or maybe um, hearing what they wanted to hear, especially at his talk at the Brookings Institute. And because the Fed was in the quiet period, you had said that Powell was more than likely going to come out and really try to bring the hammer down on the market's enthusiasm. And that's essentially what it did, right? Right. Well, yeah. And again, you know, the, the, it wasn't really a surprise. It was what was, I guess, surprising is, is that, uh, for instance, I had done Charles Payne on Fox Business on uh, Tuesday, I think it was. And, um, you know, Brian Belsky was on before me and he was saying, yeah, you know, I think the Fed will be kind of toe the line, maybe, you know, be a little bit dovish here. Um, that could help the markets. And I came right behind and says, no, I think the Fed's going to be a lot more hawkish. And, and the, the reason was, is because when markets rally, and, you know, we've talked about this before, that eases financial conditions in the markets. And, and the Fed has been very clear. They're trying to tighten financial conditions. They want to reduce inflation. That's their big fight. And so, you know, after the Brookings speech, where the market rallied 3.1%, because he said, hey, we're going to slow the pace of rate hikes, everybody's like, oh, Look, they're going to pivot now, right? This is that—that's the pivot right there. They're going to slow down the pace of rate hikes. Um, you know, he immediately came out and then told Nick Timrose from Wall Street Journal, you know, put an article out, tell him that's not what I meant. And you know, going into the CPI report, and this week was very interesting because on Tuesday there were some rumors after the market closed that somebody had leaked the CPI report because the market, you know, kind of really ran up right at the end of the day on Tuesday. Uh, we were up about one and a half percent on Tuesday before the CPI report. The CPI report comes out weaker than expected. Market jumps 3% right at the open. And then interestingly, sells off all day. Um, you know, we, we wound up about 40 basis points higher for the day, but markets did sell off going into that Fed meeting. So I think I think even the market's now starting to get the clue that, you know, being overly excited and running stock prices up is not going to make the Fed happy. And they're going to come out and kind of smack you down, which is exactly what he did on, on uh, Wednesday uh, during the press conference. He said, we're going to hike rates. We're going to fight inflation. You know, uh, that's going to mean higher unemployment and potentially, you know, lower stock prices because you're going to have some type of recession. He says, we're going to try to, you know, we'll try to avoid a recession, but, you know, there's no guarantee of that. Right. And I think he even said not not this last time, although maybe he did, um, but that the sort of the window for a soft landing is narrowing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's his way of that, saying, remember the pain I told you to prepare for? It's probably likely more than likely coming. Yeah, I have a feeling it's more likely that window is shut and maybe nailed shut at this point. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, <laughs> you and I think that, but Pal is unlikely yeah. to say it that clearly. Well, look, look, and this is a really important thing, right? So every quarter or every six weeks, they release their, you know, their financial kind of economic projections, right? And they, and they release these. And I've been tracking them ever since they started releasing these back in 2011 under Ben Bernanke. 
um, they release these estimates every, you know, every four, four quarters a year, right? They release these estimates. And, you know, each one of these, they track in what they expect inflation to be, economic growth to be, and um, uh, PCE. And so they release these projections as if they're somehow trying to forecast economic growth, et cetera. And this is the way everybody takes it. Oh, look, the Fed says that, you know, next year economic growth will be stronger. The Fed is not actually issuing out economic projections of what they actually think. What they're telling you is what they want you to think so that you'll kind of stay in line in terms of consumptions, et cetera. Um, and it was interesting because they released the projections this time saying, you know, for 2023, we'll have half a percent growth, roughly, on, if you split the, the highs and the lows, you get about half a percent growth for 2023. That means no recession, right? So that's a soft landing. Well, <clears throat> this is the interesting point about this. First of all, they're never right about their economic projections. They're always high. And then they, then they ratchet them down as we get close to the end and, and kind of match them to reality. And the reason is, is, is imagine if Jerome Powell came out yesterday and said, look, you know, here's our economic projections. Next year, we're forecasting a negative 2% GDP growth, deep recession because of us hiking rates. Immediately, the market would have sold off 10%. You know, consumers and all over the media headlines, Fed says recession coming, deep recession next year. Well, immediately everybody that reads that, they stop spending, they start hoarding cash, right? right? And you have a recession. So the Fed can't come out and say a recession is coming. So these economic forecasts are completely useless. All they are is telling you really what you want to hear to keep kind of markets without doing anything crazy but then they'll just guide them down over time. And, and it's kind of like analyst estimates for earnings are always high, they always come down. So you gotta really take these things with a grain of thought uh, of salt, but what the Fed is clearly saying, if you look at the trend of this data, it's clearly dropping. And you know, there's, there's very little evidence at this point that next year, you're gonna have positive economic growth. And, and, and the Fed is trying to tell you that in the nicest way possible. Okay. Uh, it's funny too. I just was, my mm -hmm. wife was watching 60 Minutes last night and Nora O'Donnell was interviewing um, Janet Yellen, who is no longer the Fed chair. She was Jerome Powell's predecessor, obviously, but she's the head of the U.S. Treasurer, uh, Treasury. And uh, she was kind of asking Janet questions about current economic conditions and basically saying, will there be a recession next year? And it was all of a sudden, like Janet Yellen just morphed into Alan Greenspan. Like you just could not get a straight answer out of her, right? Clear, like, yes, no, or I don't know, or whatever. It just wasn't even going there. Just trying to answer all these other questions that weren't being asked instead of the very direct question. Uh, so just proving your point there, Lance. Yeah. You just said, look, that's not, that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, Alan Greenspan, you know, most people, you know, not don't even know who Alan Greenspan was, honestly, uh, you know, when, you know, where you and I lived through the Alan Greenspan era, you know, he was the master magician of, you know, the maestro, of, that's what they call it. The maestro of Greenspeak. I mean, the guy could say, you know, spend 15 minutes making a speech and everybody walks away like, what the hell did he just say? <laughs> and, and that was on purpose. He admitted it, it was. yeah, Absolutely. And he was fantastic at it. But this, you've got to remember the Fed can't come out and, you know, why we pay so much attention to the Federal Reserve, I have no idea because they can't, they aren't telling you the truth because they can't tell you the truth. 
And because if they did, it would move markets and, and you know, it, would, it would create a recession immediately if they said, look, a recession's coming, we got to prepare for it, right? So everybody, everybody buckle down. Well, immediately you have this, this outcome that you don't want. Um, so, you know, you got to just just understand what you're dealing with with this animal uh, called the Federal Reserve and understand that what they're telling you is what they want you to hear, not necessarily what they're saying behind closed doors. Two very different things. Yep. Um, all right. Well, look, Lance, I, I also um, let's talk about the markets because they've um, they've kind of been a little bit. Uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting. It looked like we were going to get a Santa Claus rally, right? You know, the, the markets had been powering higher, as we said. Um, but then they've been sort of weak uh, this week. And then when Powell brought the hammer down, they've, they've really had a bad couple of days here. Um, so is it is it looking like Santa might actually, um, you know, skip Christmas this year market wise? Well, so we're we're right. And so let's go back. Let's, you know, let's rewind the tape here for a minute. Let's go back, you know, three, four weeks ago when you and I were talking about, you know, outcomes for the markets for the year. And we said that, yep. look, you know, we're going to have this, you know, well, you know, it's going to be sloppy trading during Thanksgiving. Um, markets could be higher. And then the first couple of weeks of December is, you know, sloppy trading down because all these mutual funds have to make distributions and everything else. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, the Santa Claus rally is the last two weeks of the year, which really starts on Monday. So that's when the inmates run the asylum. Markets are getting fairly oversold here. I mean, you know, honestly, this is a perfect setup to get a rally into the end of the year. We may wind up exactly where we started back at the 200-day moving average at this point. But the setup for a rally is now a whole lot better than it was Monday. And, you know, so having this correction, yeah, it sucks. But you know, it's not a terrible thing. So if you're a trader, this is actually a decent opportunity. We get through, we, we have big options expiration going on today for almost $4 trillion. Right. Markets are down on that. We, we, we broke through the 50 day moving average earlier today and, and we'll see if it closes above it by the end of Friday. But, you know, again, you know, you know, is Santa Claus, will, will Santa Claus come and visit Wall Street? You know, maybe, possibly. Um, there's not a lot of good news left for this year in terms of really news flow. I mean, most of it's now behind us. Right. Um, so, you know, basically, you know, the hope is here is maybe, you know, with the inmates running the asylum, look, look, all the traders are gone. All, all the traders are out to the Humptons, you know, for the holidays. <laughs> yeah, they're and, already clocked out. They're, they're done. They're gone. So the only people left are a bunch of retail traders on Robinhood, you know, trading stocks and Bitcoin. Right. So, you know, the inmates will run the asylum. It certainly wouldn't surprise me to, to see a bit of a rally, you know, over the next you know week or so heading into the year. Because, again, we still have that need for all these mutual funds, pension funds, et cetera, to do some window dressing before year end. OK. Um, and a reminder, folks, window dressing for year end. Um, that's what the big funds do to try to optic optically make it look like they're well positioned going into next year and that they were smarter than they really actually were this year. But exactly. for you as individuals, um, don't forget that you can, if you haven't done so yet, you can use next week as your chance to, um, you know, basically garden your own portfolio, particularly to uh, do some tax loss harvesting uh, and capture some capital losses that you can use to offset any capital gains you have this year or if you don't have any this year, you know, in future years. Um, the only other thing that you may want to consider doing before year end is if you want to set up a donor advised fund. So th this is a way to uh, donate shares of, of stock that you own uh, into a fund that you can then uh, 
deal with next year. That has to be done before year end. And that takes a, a couple of weeks to set up. So you may want to get started on that, you know, ASAP because a lot of people are leaving. Uh, the other thing is, is also you know, making charitable donations to like to your church. So if you normally tithe to your church, a good thing you can do is, is donate shares of stock uh, to your church, take a, a charitable deduction for that. Of course, you can also donate stock to charity that needs to be done though before year end. So um, outside of tax loss harvesting, if you need to do some other tax shelters, uh, you can do some things with donating actual shares of stock. Okay, good. And also, um, people who have retirement accounts and are over 57 or whatever, right? They have minimum distributions they've got to take in the year? Correct. Yeah. Right. Um, so they haven't taken a, those, squeeze them in. Yeah. If you haven't done it, got to get that done before year end. And, and again, you know, the, there's a calculation of that. So your advisor should be able to help you, your brokerage firm, Fidelity, whoever they do the calculations for you. It's really easy. Just make sure you get it done because it's not worth the penalty for not doing it. Yeah. And what is the penalty for not doing it? Um, there's, it's, it can, it, it varies, but basically if you don't take it, there's, you pay the taxes plus a 10% penalty. Okay. Like 10%. Okay. All right. Um, two other things I quickly just wanted to mention. One is, uh, I, I saw this meme before Powell spoke, but it was driving me nuts. Um, you know, we saw the market rally hard on the 7.1% CPI, right? Um, yeah. This is a meme, uh, common meme. It's got Drake. You've probably seen these before, Lance. Um, but, you know, uh, was it T 2021, 7.1% CPI, and he's, you know, disgusted by it. Uh, and then 2022, 7.1% CPI, and he's like, yeah, all right. <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> the difference in mentality where we still have this crazy high inflation. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, look, you and I talked, you know, back in May and June, we were saying, we said, look, you know, inflation is peaked. It's going to come down this year and it's still going to be elevated, though. And, and, and again, you know, this is the playbook is playing out just like we said it would. Inflation's coming down. It'll keep coming down next year. It's going to come down a lot faster next year because the M2 money supply has already dropped like a rock. So that's going to take that inflationary pressure out. Um, you know, if you take a look at retail sales, uh, retail sales, you can see that, you know, we talk about the pig and the python of all that monetary impulse, right? And you can see it in retail sales. There's a huge spike in retail sales in 2020, 2021, and now that's all, it's all gone, right? So all that demand push inflation is going to is coming out of the system and it's going to continue to come out next year as that pig moves through the rest of the python uh, and exits, you know, later this year. So, so again, inflation is going to come down sharply. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, if you take, a, you know, here's where the Fed's making a mistake on inflation, my opinion on it. If you take CPI from the last month, right? So we did, you know, 0.3 on CPI, multiply that out by 12 months, that's 3.6% inflation. The Fed is looking at 7.1%, which is trailing inflation over the last year versus looking forward saying, look, if we stay at 0.3 going forward, we're going to have 3.6% inflation we're still hiking rates at five, five and a quarter percent, depending on where we want to try to get to on that terminal rate. So, you know, I think the Fed is already overhyped. I think they're going to make a mistake. I think they're going to slow the economy down a whole lot more than expected because they're looking at that trailing data that has a lot of artificial impulse into it because of all that stimulus. The, the real inflation rate is probably two and a half to three to three and a half percent going into next year because that stimulus isn't there anymore. And higher interest rates are going to create the demand destruction. So, you know, I think they're making a mistake. We'll see what happens. But I think inflation comes down a lot quicker than people think. 
Yeah, and uh, so I'm going to be putting up a, a couple of memes, folks, it seems like this discussion. Um, I'm going to put one up here that I circulated this morning on Twitter um, from the Unhedged Capitalist, which I thought, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, this basically shows uh, the uh, Fed funds rate, um, it shows it, you know, rock bottom levels coming into the beginning of this year. And it says, um, uh, you know, this right now is what the economy uh, is, is based on, right? Um, and then it shows, you know, obviously the the tremendous upshot in in uh, Fed funds so far this year. And again, it's continuing to be hiked here. Um, and it basically says, look, this is what's coming, right? So like, you know, the, the economy is still acting like rates are really low. And we've just got the whole punitive effect of that massive tidal wave of, of rate hikes that have been made, but haven't fully made their way into the system coming yet. So that's just you know, corroborating what you're saying here, Lance, is that yeah. uh, economic growth is, is probably going to be a lot more anemic you know, next year on a relative basis. And it's not been great this year. Um, yeah, I just want to quickly summarize uh, the perspectives of several folks that I've interviewed in the past week, Lance. Um, so one was Axel Merck, who uh, is a longtime Fed watcher uh, on the board of his company, is William Poole, who was a former uh, president of the San Luis Fed, I think. Um, so Axel's he's got some sort of inside connections to the whole Fed world and has for a long time. And he he interviewing him, he was the most upset I've seen him um, in a long time uh, at thinking that the Fed is is really being reckless and continuing to hike as aggressively as it is at this point in time. In his words. You know, basically creating a recession and making it much deeper, much more longer and grinding than it would otherwise necessarily need to be. Mike Green, who I interviewed not that long ago, sort of echoed the same sentiment. Um, based on that, you know, I, I've also interviewed uh, Felix Zuloff, uh, highly, highly respected veteran investor, and then just this week interviewed Luke Groman. And they have a similar view and, and their outlook, I think, Lance, sort of matches yours. So I want to just confirm that. They think because of tightening and hiking and that the Fed is engineering here, uh, things are likely going to be sort of more the same of what we largely saw this year going into Q1. Um, we're going to see rates continue to go up. We're probably going to see yields continue to go back up. And you've talked about how bonds recently have gotten really oversold um, and that the dollar is probably likely to strengthen again. So if you kind of like the 2022 playbook, which not many people did, which was those things up and all assets down, they're saying you're probably going to see that same script as this year kicks off. Now, in their minds, they think that the Fed is going to over tighten, overcorrect, really break something. And so they then expect a pivot you know, they don't know exactly when first half of the year, probably more likely kind of end of Q1 ish, but who really knows? Um, and then it's a different story after that, based upon how extensive the Fed's pivot is going to be. Um, stopping there for a moment, how does that jive with sort of how you're looking at the markets right now? Well, yeah, and, you know, I, th I think that's right. You know, like we said, you know, bonds have had a huge rally here. Yields came down to about 3.4% very quickly got very overbought. So, you know, a, a bit of a retracement of that is certainly very logical here. And, and just from a technical perspective alone, the dollar has gotten very oversold. I would expect a bounce in the dollar as well. So that certainly kind of plays out. Things kind of revert back. You know, Fed's still hiking rates. And look, you know, by the way, 50 basis point hike, everybody was like, oh my gosh, I'm finally slowing down to 50 basis points. That's aggressive in 
any playbook in history, right? If the Fed comes out and goes, we're hiking 50 basis points, everybody generally goes, oh my gosh, not, oh, thank God. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a very aggressive rate hike. And then they're still going to do two or three more quarter points after that. So again, yeah, I think yields could come back up here a bit, um, you know, probably somewhere close to 4% wouldn't surprise me. Um, but at that point, I think you're going to get, that's going to be your entry point probably for buying bonds and being much more defensive um, portfolio wise for at least a quarter or two. And, and again, um, you know, I think by the end of next year, we'll probably be talking about why it's a great time to buy stocks, but we got more work to do before we get there. Yeah. And, and on that part in particular, you know, both Luke and, and Felix, although I kind of repeated Felix's outlook and Luke was like, yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, they think that stocks will probably end the year, um, substantially better than wherever they are when the Fed pivots, right? And that it'll probably be a Fed pivot. You'll see a few uh, assets react really quickly, should there be a pivot. Um, bonds and uh, precious metals being two of the most probable ones for reasons you and I have already discussed on this channel. Um, and then, um, you know, as we've seen in past years, or pa sorry, past uh, pivot periods, um, you know, the reason that forces the Fed to pivot isn't super bullish for stocks, isn't super bullish in general. Um, not, and so, <laughs> yeah, it's not bullish at all. Um, and so the, the market um, generally is waiting to see some proof that earnings are recovering before it begins to get back into stocks. But um, the, 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 their general thinking is, is uh, the part of the stock market that'll come back first will be the high growth part, right? It'll be those, those big growth tech stocks that have been, in many cases, beaten up so badly already. Um, but then they expect it to, to relatively quickly then shift into the more cyclical, industrial, you know, old, old economy type stocks. Um, again, I'll have those guys back on again uh, as we get along in this process to give their audible calls. And we'll have you here every week, Lance, uh, given your son. But you were kind of nodding as I was saying that. Does that progression still strike you as probably yeah, fairly likely? Yeah, you know, when we pivot, or again, right, so the pivot itself is when something breaks, right? So that's not good for stocks, period. That'll be liquidation event, you know, kind of across the board. And then, yeah, when people start buying, they're going to buy this, buy the most deeply discounted stuff. And that's a lot of those tech stocks that are out there that have been really hit hard, um, you know, kind of looking about the next growth cycle in the economy. I'm, I'm a little more cautious on the shift to the industrial complex side. And the reason is, is that valuations in those stocks are way too high. Uh, you take a look at, for instance, you know, if you take a look at the value stocks. Everybody's talking about, so you know, value is going to win. Maybe. Uh, I'm not saying it's not. But, you know, when you take a look at Coca-Cola or you know, McDonald's or, you know, Procter & Gamble or a lot of these other kind of, you know, old line staple companies, they're trading at 25, 30, 35 times earnings, uh, you know, trading at four, five, six times price to sales. That's tech stock expensive for a company that really doesn't grow earnings that fast. So, you know, you know, if you take a look at, for instance, McDonald's, they haven't grown earnings in a long time, right? It's just, you know, kind of earnings and, and sales are pretty much flat. Coca-Cola is the same way. Great companies, uh, Disney, you know, great companies. Right. You're just paying a very high valuation for a company that really doesn't grow earnings that fast. And, you know, so there's this hope that there's going to be this big shift from growth to value and value is going to come back. Maybe that's the case. We'll, we'll see what happens. I think more more so than anything else, it's all going to be about passive inflows, because, you know, once and we've talked about this before, is that once this market turns and the money comes back in to buy markets, they're going to buy ETFs. They're not going to buy individual stocks. 
and all that money flows into those stocks that are in the ETF. So whatever sectors are moving the markets, those will be the stocks that are going to that are going to perform the best because they're the ones getting the money flows from the passive the passive indexing. Okay, um, you know, to your point about thinking that that value is richly valued still. Um, you know, like there's a lot of tech companies that have gotten beaten up, but still there's a, you know, there's a good argument to be made that prices are still historically rich, you know, in that space too. So given that, given the fact that the Fed is tightening, given that we just talked about the dollar may strengthen, yields may go back up. Um, do you think, uh, you know, in terms of probabilities, it, it is looking more likely that we'll, we will indeed see uh, a continuation of the bear market, get back into bear market territory in the first half of the year? Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, you know, you know, I think before you can finish this cycle that we're in, I think you've got to either set new lows or at least retest those. Um, you know, valuations are still trade. So, you know, I just published an article out on Friday on our website talking about setting price targets for 2023. And, you know, I said, look, let's just do some base, basic math. That's, that's all this article talks about. So if you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, it says math and the, and the issue of valuations. Um, but if you just do the math on valuation returns and look out in the future. So let's assume that Wall Street's right. Wall Street says that 17 times trailing earnings, that's, you know, that's cheap. If we can get down to 17 times earnings, that's cheap. Okay, let's let's use that figure for a moment. So right now, the S and P for 2023, S and P the the S and P global indexes, right? The people that produce all the S and P index funds, etc. What S and P global predicts for earnings at the end of 2023 is 205 dollars a share. Now that number 205 is well above the six six percent peak to peak growth trend line going all the way back to 1950. So Getting earnings at $205 next year in a recession is well extended out there. I mean, it's a, it's a big deviation from long-term means. But let's just assume it's right for a moment. So 205 end of next year at 17 times earnings, that's about 3,500 on the index. So we were trading at 4,000 just a few days ago on the index, right? So here we are, 3,500 by next year. Let's assume we finished the year at 4,000. So next year, 3,500, that means we're going to lose about, what is that, 10, 12% next year yep. on the index, right? So you're going to be down about 12% next year on the index. If that's if Goldman is right and 17 times earnings and no recession, by the way, is the thing. But let's assume that we actually have a recession, right? So $205 in earnings. And let's assume we have a recession. During recession, PE should fall to around 15. That's the kind of long-term median going back to 1900. Well, that's going to put the market around 3,000. So now you're talking about a 22% decline in a recession. Right. That's not historically normal. But if we have a real recession, and that's kind of, let's call that option two, 15 times earnings is a soft landing, right? We just yeah. have a mild recession, right? So nothing falls apart. If we have a real recession like we're talking about. Now you're going to have 15 times earnings, but earnings are going to have to fall back to the long-term growth trend line, which is around $160 a share. That puts the S&P at 2400 at the end of 2023. So none of those none of those outlooks are great next year for stock prices. So how about a bullish option? 
what could happen that we have a bullish outcome for next year? What does that mean for stock prices? So assuming again, we're at 4,000 and let's assume no recession and we can maintain 22 times earnings on valuations, which is where we are right now. That puts the market at about 4,300, which is about a 12% gain from 4,000. But the point is, is that, you know, that doesn't even get you to the all-time highs of the market. So even if you get a 12% gain next year, you're still underwater from this year, right? <laughs> and you've got to assume no recession, $205 in earnings in share, uh, per share, and you've got to assume that the market will maintain 22 times earnings all of next year. So, I mean, that's a, that's a big bunch of ifs given the Fed hiking rates and slower economic growth, et cetera. So the, the point of the article is this, you know, no matter how you do the math, the forward return expectations next year are not great. Now, anything can happen, right? I mean, predicting anything out more than three days is, a, is, is right. just a full game anyway. But just doing some basic math, it suggests that markets are going to be lower next year. So to your, to your original question, if you, if you look at the market through that lens, I don't know how you finish a bear market, get valuations down to 15, 16, 17 times earnings, get, you know, get earnings aligned with some line of historical growth trend that's happened every time since 1950 without having the market retest or set new lows. That's, I just don't see how you get there. All right, that's really helpful math to walk through there, Lance. Um, and it by really way, does make it hard to- Yeah, by the way, if you pull that article off our website, I've got all the charts with the different projections in there for you. Great, and I'll try to pull some of them while you're, you know, during the editing process and overlay them on the screen if they map to what you're talking about um, there. Um, but, uh, you know, it, 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 you hear all that and it leaves you thinking, okay, next year is probably not going to be a great year for stocks, right? And again, we're talking probabilities, so there's always room to be surprised here. Um, let's switch over to bonds for a second. So in, in the arc that I described, bonds may fall for Q1-ish or whatever, as long as, as long as rates keep going up, you know, then bonds may start going and may keep going down or, or may resume going back down again. Um but, uh, you know, the Fed is, even by its own words, is closer to the end of the hiking cycle uh, than the start, right? Um, Luke Roman, talking with him yesterday, made a great quote where he said, you know, I, I, he, he looked like he didn't have confidence that, that the Powell was going to be able to get to five and then stay there, you know, for the long duration that Powell was saying he'd like to. And Luke said, no, I don't think it's going to happen because the world is insolvent at 5%. Yeah. <laughs> um, and well, so, that's, well, that's why remember we, we had this conversation last week. We said this, and I went like a cough, cough, bullshit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's no way he's no, Luke's absolutely right. You cannot keep interest rates at five percent for a year, that's just not gonna happen, right? So, that by itself, you know, may break something enough that forces the Fed to have to start um, bringing rates back down. Um, but of course, the Fed may have long broken something beforehand with maybe even the rates cut hikes that have been done, and we're just waiting to see that manifest, right? So my point being is, is um, the probability looks not bad that um, A, the Fed will stop hiking after a couple more rates, um, rate hikes, and B, um, it, it may not be able to hold rates high for as long as it wants. And so that's gonna bring rates down again at some point, and that is going to you know, have that repricing effect for bonds, especially long dated, long dated bonds, as we've talked about a lot in this program. So, you know, 
if I'm, put, I'm putting words in your mouth here, feel free to massage them. But next year is a little bit of a shaky outlook year for stocks, but bonds may still be looking pretty good. And I do want to remember, I think I asked you last week or the week before, in terms of how attractive the bond market out, uh, outlook was. And I think you had said, best in my lifetime. Do you still yeah. have that sort of same energy around it? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and you know, I've you know, I told you before, I, I bought long-dated treasuries, you know, about a month ago now, I bought out-of-the-money call options, you know, kind of putting money where my mouth is, right? You know, I, I look, there is there is a, a more than reasonable possibility. Is it guaranteed? No, there's no guarantees in the financial markets. But there is more than a reasonable possibility that if you had to choose, right, you, Adam, you can only make one investment. You can either buy stocks or bonds. That's all you can do. You can't do both. You got to do one or the other. I'd choose bonds all day long because next year bonds will most likely outperform stocks because of the nature of what's going to happen economically. Right. And they will pay you in the process. And if you're buying you treasuries, do. you've got the the um, guarantee, right? The, yeah. uh, and all of them give you the, well, give you your principal back if you can hold to maturity. Um, of course, you have to factor in the default risk. And in theory, the U.S. government is the lowest default risk out there. Uh, no, I agree. And and I appreciated that you shared last week that on your personal, not not your client's yeah. portfolio, but in your personal account, you had bought those long-term uh, TLT leaps. Um, I had actually done a, a, a mirror trade of yours. And um, like you, um, I just sold this week um, half of that trade because it basically covered what I'd put in. So now I'm playing with house money and that's fun. Um, and part of that was just smart gardening, as you've always advised us to do. But part of that was thinking, all right, you know, who knows what's happening? And this is more trading, which I'm not encouraging people to do. But that yeah. we may get a period of rates going back up here, because as you said last week, uh, that bonds have gotten really oversold. And so I'm sort of planning that that position is probably going to get, you know, it's going to deflate a little bit over the next couple of weeks. And then hopefully provide another attractive entry point. And, and I very well may go back in there, but but also sharing my personal side of things, and folks, this is not financial advice for you per se, um, but I've taken kind of every bit of cash that I had just sort of lying around earning nothing uh, and put it into a ladder of treasuries for, because yeah. of exactly what you said. Yeah. And look, and this is, this is, you know, what, you know, we're, you know, we're having just a tremendous, um, you know, lead flow coming in, people inquiring about our bond sleeves that we have that we're, you know, have made available to wealthy on uh, viewers as well, um, which is great. Uh, and, you know, so, you know, there's just so much opportunity there. And it's not going to, and, and unfortunately, it's not going to be last, last long. You know, it, it's, you know, this period where you're getting, you know, three, 4% yields on bonds, that's not going to be around for very long. So, you know, if, if, for people that go, you know, if I could just get 4% of my money risk free, Go buy a 10-year treasury right now because this is probably about the best you're going to get. Yields may go up here a little bit. You get back towards four. You buy it, you lock it in for 10 years, but that's all you're going to get. Now you have inflation eating into that 10% yield, so you've got to be right. careful with that. But, um, you know, it's it's it, this is one of those opportunities that is going to come along that we will probably never see again in our lifetime because of what we did during the pandemic. Uh, that will probably never occur again. You never know, but... Um, you know, the, 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 the outcome for yields is going to be very akin to what is happening in Japan. Too much debt, too many obligations. Yields can't rise much above one or two percent in Japan without having a recession. It's just a function of math. And we're we are gradually getting in that direction. The, the more, you know, the, the, 
the House just passed a uh, spending bill to cover spending for a, a week. Yeah, um, we can pass another spending bill to cover next year. We don't even pass a budget anymore, right? We just keep ramping up the debt. We just automatically adjust spending up eight percent. We pay for everything, sticking a billion dollars worth of marks and you know Reagan, and that that's a, you know has never seen its face again in, in Washington D.C. But the more debt that we pile on, that guarantees lower rates of of interest over time, slower economic growth, lower rates of inflation, and we're just on that path of Japan. We're on we're on the Japanification of the U.S. It's just going to be a function of time till we get there, and hopefully, I'll die before we actually get to that. <laughs> but you know, it you know, for my kids, unfortunately, they're going to have to live through it. Yeah. Um, wow, well, we could make that a whole rant by itself. Um, getting back to your point about being this is you know a very attractive moment in time for folks that want to invest in bonds. You, you gave brief mention to the the bond sleeve concept. Um, you and I went into a lot of detail in that two weeks ago when, when you guys launched it at RIA. Um, if folks want to really get all the details, um, just go back to two weekly market recaps ago to watch it there. But sort of in a nutshell, you guys have put together um, a couple of different um, bond portfolios um, based upon sort of people's you know risk reward tolerance and what they're looking for, um, treasuries, some corporates, et cetera. Um, and you guys are making this available. Obviously, if somebody is a client of yours, they they get that as just part of the overall service. But if somebody's got their money with somebody else, but says, you know, I'd like to actually, you know, put some of my money to work specifically in, in a bond portfolio like this, they can just invest in this sleeve, yeah. right? Yeah, and 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 you set up a, a special kind of you know wealthy on slash fixed income link, and and you can email us directly. And there's look, there's this isn't a fund. Right. So we, I've had a few emails come in. It's like, hey, can you send me your fun fact sheet? It's, it's not a fund. Right. This isn't a fund. It's not anything like that. We're just simply if you don't know how to buy bonds and you want a bond portfolio built for you, you open up an account at Fidelity and we will, you know, sign some paperwork with you so we can operate in the account and we will buy a bond ladder in your account for you. That's it. And right. then we'll and sorry, but you're, you're buying individual bonds. You're not buying yes, yeah. ETFs. You're buying literally a bond. You're making, you're building a bond portfolio for them. Exactly. And and then we'll, we'll manage it in terms of, you know, if a bond matures, we'll roll it over and, you know, do that. So you won't have to do anything. We'll take care of all that for you, but it's not a bond fund. There is no fact sheet. There is no anything else. It's just a, you know, if you need somebody to buy you a, bond, a portfolio of bonds, whether you want treasuries, corporates, a mix, whatever, um, we can certainly do that for you. So happy to do it. Okay, great. And you you, you mentioned the URL, which I'll put up on the screen here. It's wealthion.com slash fixed income. And if you want to learn more about this, folks, you just go there, you fill out the little, you know, contact me information and Lance's firm will reach out to you with the details. Um, yeah. All right. So um, moving on, build, building on sort of your screed there about how our politicians can't seem to do more than just kick the can, you know, only about a week at a time at this point. Um, another, uh, you know, government solution that just came out today is, um, you know, Washington has sold off, I think, about a third of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, yep. right? And they just announced that they're going to start adding back to it and that they're going to buy 3 million barrels, I think, uh, in February. And so, of course, what happens? Well, oil had been falling and, and it reversed, you know, right on the news, right? I don't know anybody that telegraphs you know, that they're going to buy something so that the market can then front run it basically, right? And 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 jump the price back up to, to gouge the buyer. 
but it seems like that's what we're going to do here. Well, yeah, they did it, and that that little spike lasted for about 15 seconds, and then oil prices went right back down again. Um, you know, look, you're right. You know, if if the government's going to refill the petroleum reserve and buy three million barrels of oil, just do it. Don't say anything about it. Just go do it because the whole purpose is, is to keep oil prices cheap enough so you can refill it cheaper. If you go out and tell everybody, hey, we're about to buy 30 million barrels of oil over the course of the next six months to refill the, whatever the number is. And it's a lot of oil to fill that reserve. Don't don't make any mistake. Don't tell people. Just shut up and do it. But this is, you know, this is all part of this administration, which does everything back backwards anyway. But, you know, you know, they're they're you know, one of the arguments. So so two things are going on with oil prices that, you know, are kind of interesting. One oil prices will fall next year because of collapsing demand, right? So as the economy slows down, as that pig, as that pig exits the python um, next year, you know, we're going to see lower oil prices because lower demand. However, the interesting aspect of that is, is that you're going to have this need to refill these oil reserves, which is going to add some artificial demand. That may keep oil prices a little more elevated next year but as we've said several times here, that gap between energy stocks and oil prices, and we said we'd sold our oil stocks uh, two, three weeks ago now. I forgot. Yeah. I, I can't remember if it was two weeks ago or three. Um, anyway, we'd sold all of our energy stocks because of this big gap between energy stocks and oil prices. And that was been, that's been a really good trade so far. They've been under a lot of pressure. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, it's it's we're going to see a rotation. And again, as, as you get weaker demand because of weaker economic growth, I think the, the risk to the oil sector uh, probably still outweighs the reward. We'll see what happens next year. OK, yeah. Well, um, uh, again, it's just a, an example of the inefficiency. Um, and I'm probably being kind with that term of how government tends to operate. Um, again, was reading something similar today on the global scale with the embargo that we have against Russia, where they're they're now forcing a price cap um, on Russian oil. And basically all that's doing is creating a bonanza in the black market. Um, so the oil, the Russian oil is still getting sold, right? The embargo yeah. is not keeping Russian oil from finding its way to the West. Um, imagine that. Imagine that. Uh, and it's getting bought at much higher prices than the $60 gap um, by the folks that are um, and running the rules, you know, the, the, the prohibition breakers. Um, and so basically all we're doing is just we're, we're not hurting Russia, which is the intent, and we are rewarding the criminal element in this, right? You know, and, and we're making it harder for our allies to actually get the barrels of oil that they need to power their economies. So we're, we're doing, you know, kind of a virtue signaling uh, decision, but we're actually just hitting ourselves in the head and helping the bad guys out in the process. Isn't this always the case, though? I mean, you know, this is the problem with tariffs, the problem with trade wars, the problem with price, price caps, controls, price yeah. control, um, gun controls, whatever. I mean, you, you you pick something. Let's control, you know, guns, right? So great. Good people, law-abiding citizens can't get guns, but the bad guys are going to buy guns. And guess what? Because they're now black market, the guys that are dealing the, the guns, right, are going to charge a lot more, right? So, so again, to your point, Whenever you do these types of actions, all it does is allow the criminal element to operate even more efficiently because you eventually start to drag the non-criminal element into it to get what they need, right, regardless or not. I mean, good people will, will get into that gray zone if they desperately need something, whether it's food or oil or energy or whatever it is. I mean, if you can't 
you know, just imagine, you know, the, you live somewhere where it gets uber cold and you can't get, you know, heating oil for your home, just as an example. You know, good people will start making grayish decisions, right? They may not go all the way into the criminal element, but they may bend some corners and bend some rules to get what they need. And that's the problem with these things. And, and it never it never works out like they tell you it works. Like, oh, we're just going to we're going to put tariffs on this, and we're only going to punish Russia or China or whoever it is we're going to punish. It doesn't ever really punish them. It just, as to your point, it just rewards the bad guys. Right, and you know, punishes us. Like you said, you know, there are yeah. people in Europe. Uh, you know, your point about good people making bad decisions, gray or bad decisions. You know, once you start removing, you know, lower and lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, people just get understandably more and more desperate, right? So anyways, don't want to rat hole on this, but it's it's continuing our, our longstanding, you know, uh, observations that government involvement generally tends to make markets worse. Yeah. Um, one last thing on oil, just to flag it for folks that haven't seen it yet, um, going back to Luke Roman, <clears throat> released an interview with him this morning, and uh, where we really drilled into the headlines that we've seen recently about the potential that oil might start getting priced in gold. Um, uh, who is that? I think Zoltan Posnar was the one who sort of got this ongoing, uh, you know, prediction that uh, the Saudis may start actually accepting a gram of gold uh, for a barrel of oil. Um, it's actually a really fascinating discussion. Luke. Uh, seems to believe that it is inevitable, not like it's going to happen tomorrow, but he's actually got a, a rationale for why he thinks that that is inevitability. And uh, folks, if you want to go watch that, um, I'll put up a link to it right here. It's really, really pretty fascinating. If you do watch it, I want to give one quick um, correction. Um, I was talking about how, you know, if it indeed happens, um, it's pretty amazing because there's 31 troy ounces in a in a gold coin, right, which I can hold in the palm of my hand. Uh, if if actually oil sold for a gram of gold, which price wise it it kind of does today, um, that would be like having uh, they're, they're stored in forty four gallon drum, uh, forty two gallon drums uh, for oil. So it'd be like having thirty one uh, forty two gallon drums of oil for one gold coin. And when you think about that, you think of oh my god, like I could do an awful lot of work for a long time with the energy stored in that much oil. Right? Like in the room I'm in right now, I couldn't fit 31, 42 gallon drums of oil. Um, and so it, 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 it's just interesting as a mental exercise, uh, but also interesting is sort of for precious metals as well as a store of value. If you can store the value of 31, 42 gallon drums of oil in the palm of your hand, to me, that really just sort of brings home one of the reasons why, you know, owning precious metals as a store of value can be really compelling. Um, all right. So, um, uh, one other area where I want to pat us on the back a little bit here um, is uh, it was just released today that uh, the uh, exactly which organization went and did this. It was it was um, uh, it was a governmental organization. I don't think it was the BLS, but it, it was used. Yeah. To, Philly Fed. Thank you. It was used to compare the first half of the year job creation versus the data that the BLS put out. And lo and behold, Lance, <laughs> as we long predicted, and you very clearly predicted was going to happen as, as the year ended here, is we're starting to get um, some pretty substantial corrections. And so um, 
the BLS said that reported that over a million jobs, over 1.1 million jobs um, had been created in Q2, uh, looking at the Philly Fed's hard data, right? So the BLS is a model with projections, basically, and assumptions. The Philly Fed is much more real data uh, based. Um, and it, it, it's a, it, 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 that's why it comes out at the, near the end of the year. Um, right. They are saying that no, not 1.1 million jobs were created, but a net 10,500 jobs were created. I mean, like less than 1% of what the BLS thought. Yeah, which is exactly what you would expect in this economy, right? I mean, um, you know, it's also interesting that, you know, part of, and again, that's just for this year. We've got to go back and get revisions for 2020, 2021, right? So those are still coming. Um, we'll get those revisions, I think, uh, June of next year. So, but, you know, like the BLS was assuming that we were creating all these businesses post-pandemic. We weren't creating businesses post-pandemic. They were all shutting down and going out of business because people couldn't travel. People couldn't go to restaurants. They couldn't go to stores. And, and you know, we, you, know, you and I have talked about the record number of businesses. That's why we were giving out PPP loans, right? Um, we had to get payroll protection program loans out there to keep, try to keep small businesses in business. So the people weren't running out creating all these businesses, but the BLS was adding 200,000 jobs a month in, in their survey data, you know, based on this birth death model of, of, of business creation that just wasn't existing. So, you know, again, this, this whole tight labor market, you and I have questioned this, you know, the job opening labor turnover survey. We've questioned the employment numbers that just keep coming out. It's like every month, 300,000 new jobs. It's like, where? Who's hiring all these people, <laughs> right? So especially when the labor force participation rate isn't moving. So it, it just, it, it's going to be interesting to see when all this plays catch up. And, and ironically, as you and I said, after the election, we would start getting this data out. Right. There you go. Yeah, well, and that that is the whole lipstick on the pig, right? Don't let any yeah. bad news out prior to the election. Then afterwards, oops, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I just want to reiterate that 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 massive miss um, was only for the first half of the year. So right. we still very likely have another uh, another big miss because, as as I reported, I think it might have been last week, uh, that the delta current delta between the household and the establishment survey which are both done by the BLS, uh, interestingly yeah. enough, is at like 2.7 million jobs at yeah. this point. It's a massive gap. And it seems very clear that whatever, you know, uh, modeling process the BLS is using here is just a bunch of baloney <laughs> you know, yeah. to be off well, by, you know, that much. Well, here, here's, here's the thing to think about, right? So if, if the first half of the year was only 10,000 jobs, since... June, right? So second half of the year now, you take a look at all the manufacturing surveys. What do all the manufacturing surveys tell you about, and, and even the service sector surveys tell you about employment? They all rolled over, right? Right. Yeah. They're, they're employee, they, you know, their hiring of employees has slowed down. Uh, wage growth has slowed down. So if you only had 10,000 done in the first half of the year, I, I, I'm scared to find out what we did in the second half of the year because it may be worse. Right. And of course, through this whole time, through this whole year, right, we've been hearing both from the administration, but particularly from the Fed about the overheated, overly strong jobs market. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, I, and I think the job market on a relative basis is a lot stronger this year than it's going to be next year. But it does not seem to be the hail and hearty jobs market that we've been you know, convinced, been, they've tried to convince us that it is. Yeah, no, um, exactly right. 
All right. So um, normally I do sort of a recession watch section in these. I'm just going to blend it into this topic and the next one. Um, so uh, layoffs keep on chugging along. And what's notable about today is it was just announced that Goldman Sachs is firing 4,000 people. That's about 10% of its workforce, right? And so what's important about this is this is, you know, again, getting outside of just the tech, right? We've been told, oh, that's the high growth tech companies that overstaff. No, it's really bleeding into the general economy. Um, and of course, when, when a firm like Goldman, which is sort of one of the bulletproof, untouchable firms that, you know, no matter what happens, finds a way to make a profit, they're even having to cut now. Yeah. Well, New York Times also laid off a bunch of journalists. So, you know, they were all kind of screaming and panicking. It's like, hey, you have to protect our jobs. They're like, oh, we can't, right? It's, it's business. Yeah, you know, I actually- You lose half a million subscribers in a year, you know, somebody's got to go. And I sort of snarkily responded on Twitter to that news because um, I, I can't remember ex the exact number, but it was over a thousand. It was maybe like 1,500 people that were getting fired or something like that. And I was like, I didn't know the New York Times had that many people working there. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, in, you know, and in, in really, you know, there's a couple of things that, you know, interestingly enough, you know, we're talking about the employment. Or by the way, if, if you want a chart of that gap between BLS and employment, if you go to our Twitter uh, page, I've actually posted a piece out this morning on Twitter with that chart and, the, and that quote from the Philly Fed. So it's right there at the, the top of the list. But anyway, you know, if the employment data is what the Philly Fed sets, and if the employment data is potentially even worse in the second half of the year, this morning jobless claims, or yesterday jobless claims were at like 211,000, right? Still near record lows, but yet we keep seeing all these layoffs, New York Times, Goldman Sachs, right. whoever it is, laying off employees, but yet these jobless claims continue to be near record lows. And again, that's another survey, right? So, you know, they, you know, the, the BLS calls the states and the states say, oh yeah, this is how many jobless claims we had. And you know, there's it's just kind of collected that way. So again, I think we may see some big adjustments potentially to a lot of this economic data next year once kind of the wheels come off the cart. So, okay, um, because point. it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. Jobless claims are where they are, right? Which which begs, you know, is that again is that another faulty indicator that we've been looking at that's been giving us a wrong signal here, right? Um, or so. You know, is are somehow these people magically getting reemployed really quickly? Um, I'll say anecdotally, the folks I've known that are losing their jobs and around me, it's more tech. They are not bouncing immediately into a next job from from what I can tell. But again, that's just anecdotal. Um, all right. One more major topic. Then we're going to ask you about trades you made this week. Then I got a couple announcements. And if we have any time, we'll get into kind of a, a rant that I think is interesting this week. Just don't know if you how much time you have. Um, all right. So housing is next. Um, so I just recorded an interview for next week with housing analyst Nick Jurley. Um, I love interviewing him. Uh, it's always a challenge to get through all the data. He's got so much data that he produces. Um, so I'm just going to give you guys a, a quick tease. I'm going to put up uh, two charts here. This first chart is a chart of um, you know 25 major metros and the declines in sales that we're seeing, sales transactions that we're seeing in these markets. Um, and you can see here, folks, in all these top 25 markets, sales are down anywhere between 40 to 50%, right? So the market is just going into cardiac arrest. And Lance, this is the standoff that you and I have been talking about the past number of weeks where sellers are desperately trying not to sell and buyers are saying, no way am I buying 
houses at these prices with mortgage rates where they are. And we're going to find out who blinks now. I think it's going to be the sellers that you and I have talked about a lot. Um, let me put up this next chart, which is of price declines. And again, you'll see you know 25 top markets here. And you'll see price declines are, this, this is showing price declines between May of this year and November of this year. And you can see it's getting pretty substantial. At the top of the list here, you got markets like Austin that are down 18% in the past seven months, which is crazy. So if you think that every, you know, pretty much now, everybody who bought seven months ago, just seven months ago, has lost all of their down payment. They've lost all the equity they had in the house, right? And, and we're still in 2022 here. So all the shoes that you and I think are still left to drop uh, are still ahead of us. And yet there are a couple of markets that have lost between 15 to 18% already. So uh, in, in Nick's very clear terms, he says the housing crash is now here. It's now underway. It's likely going to get substantially worse from where it is right now, you know, kind of pushed into a corner. He thinks kind of on average nationally, it's going to be around 30% or so. So, you know, in a market like Austin, where you've lost 18% already, it's like, all right, well, maybe you're about at the halfway mark. Um, but nationally, I think prices are only down so far a very small percentage, maybe like 2% or so nationally. So we are still very much in the first inning uh, of this crash. But as Nick is saying, because he's been talking about it for a long time, and you and I have been talking about it for long enough, where it is fast switching from the academic to reality. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week. And I told you that my, my wife and I are, you know, just casually looking for a new house, a new home to buy. And it's interesting, you know, there's a just anecdotal, right? Uh, talking about the standoff between buyers and sellers. We've, we've gone and looked at a couple of houses and we went and looked at a house last weekend. A couple bought it um, about six months ago for three quarters of a million dollars. No, yeah, about three quarters of a million dollars. They bought it, um, renovated it because they're going to flip it, right? And they bought it just before, you know, really kind of rates really started going up a whole lot. And so they actually, I said they bought it about six months ago. It was, it was actually last year they bought it. So they bought it last year before rates took off. Um, $750,000. They renovated it. They want $1.4 million. It's been on the market for six months and nobody's buying it. But they're unwilling to drop that price because mm -hmm. they've got in their mind I bought it for this. I want to sell it for this. That's how I'm going to make my profit margin. But yet, because they've got a, you know, they bought it for 750, then they spent, you know, call it three, four hundred thousand dollars, whatever it is, to fix this up. So they've got to make 1.4 million to get this thing done. But now rates have gone up and nobody wants to buy it. And so the, to your point, they're unwilling to drop the price, and buyers aren't coming up in price. They're like, hey, if you get down to where I'm, you know, going to buy it, which is by the way, that neighborhood that it's in. Is about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, right? That's about <laughs> okay. what that neighborhood pulls. So when you look at all the comps in the neighborhood, it's like, what are you smoking, right? But you know, they were banking on this whole, you know, and, and interestingly enough, the people that are flipping this house are from California. So yeah, little you know, surprise what, to me, but yeah, yeah. But you know what? What they're bank, what they were banking on is that oh, people will just you know, we make it really nice. It's a very cool house, very feng shui, right? So I mean, it's it's a nice house. Um, but they were banking on people just willing to overpay for stuff. And that time is gone. So I don't know when it happens, but I, you know, I think I agree with Nick that, you know, I think we're going to see some real substantial price declines next year. So it's, it's kind of fun to sit out here on the outside, looking in, going, I've got cash. I want to buy, I'm just going to wait. Right. Just be patient. Yeah. yeah. And, and Nick, uh, you know, said that, 
if you look at past housing corrections, they tend to, to take about five years to wash out. And he said that might be true this time around. Um, but he said this one might be a bit different, um, or he expects it to be a, big di a bit different, where the majority of the correction he thinks is going to happen in 2023 and maybe through the first half of 2024 and then sort of be a long tail after that. So we'll, we'll see. But but in talking about the the correction, it sounds like you're seeing an example of this. As he said, you know, the sailors are really stubborn, right? And they band together for as long as they possibly can. But then as you and I have talked about, there are organic transactions that are going on that just always have to go on. People die, they get divorced, whatever, right? And, and because housing's priced at the margin, those are resetting price in neighborhoods. And so there's a first mover advantage to break from the herd as a seller because you can do a little reduction in price and hopefully move your house and still preserve most of the equity that was there, right? And then everybody else who who waits longer yeah. gets a lower and lower price, right? So everybody then floods to rush for the exit. And, and the, the picture I had in my head, and I hate to say this, but I was reading a story today about, did you read the story about this 1 million liter um, aquarium in the German oh, hotel? Yes. So my son lives not too far away from there. Oh, gosh. All right. So anyways, folks, I'll see if I can find a picture to put up. And this really is tragic. But this hotel had this massive showpiece of this massive aquarium. And it just broke something. You know, there's too much pressure in it. And there was a weak spot. And the whole thing just disintegrated. A hundred species of fish. They call it they're calling they're calling this actually a maritime disaster because this aquarium had a hundred different species of fish. And when the thing broke and flooded, it went outside, right? So all the fish went outside. Well, it's 19 degrees outside. They all froze. They all became so, tropical fish popsicles. Yeah, exactly. So, super, super sad as an animal lover. But but it, reading it, it did make me think like in many ways, that's what the housing market correction could be like, where it's just the sellers are just holding tight, holding tight. And then just, you know, it just floods well, out. But let's talk about why, though, just real quick to recap this. We talked about this last time. You know, people that have a house in Austin, as you, uh, by the way, let's, let's let me clarify. My wife and just my wife and I were just out window shopping. I'm not buying a one point four million dollar house. So, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I take my wife to shop at Tiffany's. We window shop and we go to sales. That's why everybody run around going, why is going to buy a million dollar house? No, I'm not buying a million dollar house. No, 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 no. Because <laughs> you guys you guys are buying in the like six to seven million range, right? Exactly. I mean, I don't want to live with the serfs over there. No. Yeah, yeah. You're in the you're in the big time estate. I, I get it. Yeah, exactly. No, I I live a lot smaller in life. So anyway, um, but you know, the, the point is, is like if you live in Austin, here's a good example of what we're talking about, Adam. So you live in Austin. Let's use your example. I've got a house in Austin. I'm thinking about moving. Maybe next year, year after, whatever. Maybe I'm getting close to retirement. My kids have left the house. Whatever. But I've got a lot of equity in my house. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to live here for a while. My equity's great. I got all this money in my house. I don't have anything in savings, right? Because we know that 80% of Americans have no money in savings. They had it in the equity in their house. So they're okay, right? Economy slows down. It's okay. I got my money in my house. Someday I'll sell my house and I'll have money for retirement. Sounds great. Well, now their equity is, has been reduced by 20%. This is kind of like having a stock market crash. The question becomes, and this is where this really becomes you know, a factor for the, for the real estate market, what, and I don't know where this number is, but at what level of price reduction do people say, I better sell my house now and get what equity I have left because right. I don't know where this thing is going to bottom. This is what happens with the stock market as well. People sell the lows. 
um, for the same reason. I got to just keep what I got. I just can't afford to lose anymore. So that's your point is that I don't know where that level is, but at some point we hit that level where sellers just go, screw it. I'm out. I got to sell. And it's like you said, it's like that aquarium all at once. Boom, it hits the market. And then that's where the trouble really begins. Yeah. And, and th there's a chart that Nick has that I won't put up. I'll leave it as a teaser for the video. Um, but he shows how housing ownership in the U.S., um, the, the percent of, of the housing stock owned by seniors has exploded over the past 10 years. Um, and at the same time, uh, the amount of housing, percentage of housing stock that's owned by um, people 30 and under has continued to nosedive. And it's a very small fraction of, of the market at this point in time. So to your point, Lance, is there are a lot of seniors with a lot of, of, of homes and likely home equity that, they, that needs to be protected. And, and that's you know, going to going to flood out the way that you said. And All right, look. Question, uh, yeah. And the question is, and ultimately, the question is, is he going to sell it? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 that's again a little teaser for for next week's video. Nick said that's really the problem we have right now is it is a lack of of buyers, um, and it's not just because of affordability, but we basically pulled a lot of purchasing uh, into 2020 and, and largely into 2021. Um, and so, you know, we basically stole transactions that were going to happen in 2023, 2024, uh, into, you know, the recent past two years. So, right. um, that is going to be the problem, which is where are the buyers going to come from? So anyways, we got to move on. I'm looking at the time. Um, I, I know you're, you're tight here. Um, uh, so real quick, let's get to trades. What no. trades have you guys done? All right. Pardon me? Uh, you know, two weeks ago, we said we were selling into the rally. We were well positioned for this sell off. And so we're just kind of, uh, you know, sitting here, you know, taking it easy right now. So uh, we're actually looking for some opportunities maybe for a trade going in. If we do get look like we get a good setup, set up for a Santa Claus rally, we might buy a little bit for a trade. But, um, you know, we kept recommending, you know, this rally, sell the rally, sell the rally, sell the rally, because we thought it was a bear market rally. Turned out that that looks like it, that's exactly what it was. Okay, so for the rest of the year, you might do a tactical trade, but otherwise, you'll you'll go into the new year looking at how the tea leaves shake up. Then, correct. Okay, um, couple quick uh, just housekeeping notes. Um, one, folks, I, I just want to um, I'm going to ask you at the end of the video to like this video and subscribe to it. But if you can subscribe, if you haven't yet, um, we are getting very close to hitting an important milestone of 200,000 subscribers here at YouTube, which. It's pretty awesome for a channel that's only been around for a year and a half. I'd love to hit that goal before the end of the year. So again, if you're watching and you haven't subscribed yet, please do me a favor and just, just hit that subscribe button. Hit the like button too while you're down there if you can. Um, I also just want to give a quick note too. Um, uh, I'm sure if you've been on this channel for any time, you've seen that that periodically there are spam comments uh, that get made in, the, in the, the comment section down here. A lot of them pretending to be wealthy on it. Pretty obvious that they're not, but but every once in a while, somebody you know gets duped and uh, they'll reach out to me and say, hey, are, are, you, know, you told me to contact you on WhatsApp and I did, but this seems fishy. Is that really you? And the answer is, is no, it's not. Um, these are horrible scammers. Um, I go on YouTube a couple of times a day, delete the ones I see. I've got another person who helps me with that process. Um, but now I'm on Twitter. Uh, we're also starting a, a, an Instagram account um, and a few other social media accounts too. And we're finding scammers on there too. So I just want to make it super clear to you guys that neither me nor Wealthion 
will ever directly reach out to you over social media and try to engage you in some sort of investment opportunity. And particularly, these seem to be crazy crypto type things. Um, right. Hopefully, that's obvious to most people. But I, I do just want to make it really crystal clear. That is not us. If you see accounts like that, please block and report them if you can help us out with that. Um, this is just one of the problems that cost you of dealing with social media is you get these scammers that see a brand on the rise and try to capitalize off of it. Um, last, I just want to give one quick more note. Um, uh, if you uh, might have heard me in the past couple of videos talk about uh, the uh, company Over and the gold jewelry that they sell, that's that's all 22 and 24 karat gold and sterling silver. Um, so it's a way to own highly pure precious metals, but in a form function that your spouse is going to really enjoy. Um, they are reoffering their 15% off. Um, and I'll put the code up here. It's uh, Over Holiday 15. If you go to their website, um, they can still ship in time for the holidays. You'll get that 15% off. Um, it's really nice that Gina reached out to me. She said that she's gotten some great feedback from the wealthy on folks that have, have bought from her this year. Um, also shared with me that uh, her company, Over, uh, was just featured by Sotheby's at a recent jewelry show in London. So uh, it's just fun to hear that this company is actually, you know, getting recognized by big brands like that. Um, and again, if you're trying to warm your uh, your sweetheart up to uh, wearing some jewelry, that's maybe something you can share with them. Um, all right. Um, real quick, Lance, I don't know how much time you got left. Um, let me give you the topic. You tell me if you want to get into any of it or if we just punt it to next week. But I uh, had a really important interview this week with a guy named Nicholas Eberstadt. Um, and you and I, Lance, have been talking about how um, there's uh, over 100 million people now who are not included in the workforce calculations, right. right? So when we hear that unemployment rate's really low, well, the reason it's really low is because this 100 million cohort of adults is not involved in the math there, right? And in particular, he talked about um, this large and growing, uh, fast growing, sadly, segment of adults, uh, prime age adults, 25 to 54, um, healthy or at least able-bodied, um, who uh, are opting out. They're mostly men, but 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 actually, there's a a fast-growing cohort of women in there too that are just giving up on paid work, and uh, it's really bad for society. We talked all about the societal costs in in the, the interview. Um, but it's just incredibly toxic for the individual too. You know, these people, there are surveys that go out and ask these people about uh, what they're doing and how they're spending their time. They report high levels of depression. They report a ridiculous amount of screen time, um, you know, probably largely in large part playing Call of Duty or online gambling or OnlyFans or whatever, right? But it's not stuff that's benefiting society or them, uh, to be honest. And in terms of how they're making a living, um, they're either getting on disability somehow, or they are just literally mooching off of parents, girlfriends, uh, boyfriends, and spouses. Um, so massive academic, uh, epidemic. And he, he wrote a book on this back in 2016. So this is something he's been tracking that the pandemic certainly exacerbated, but it wasn't caused by the pandemic. This is something that's been much more structural for a longer period of time. Um, so anyways, um, there are a couple of things about this I'd love to dig into with you. Don't know how much time you have. It's, it's a whole show. I mean, really, let's let's do this next week because it'll be a great end of the year wrap up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, let's, let's just talk about the demise of America the day before Christmas. So, um, you know, but no, uh, look, 
it, it really is something that deserves a good bit of time because, you know, this goes to the whole reason why we have these calls for socialism. Um, look, and this even goes to things like critical race theory and a lot of the other thing, this, a lot of these other things that have been done over the last couple of years. And there's this rising level of support for these type of programs because they all derive ultimately from Marxist theory back in history. And, and again, this is this whole idea that, you know, the government can just print money and give it to you. So why work? And, and the workplace is so unfair. Why would I go work for some, you know, corporation that's just going to devalue my work and pay me a pittance of, of what I deem to be my worth for this job when I can just sit at home and like Call of Duty, which and that's you know, exactly just so you know, that's exactly the feedback that I've been getting from people who watch the video who have checked out. So yeah. I, I, it's very, very interesting and, to hear from those people, and that that's the big yeah. reason why. And they're very angry about it. A absolutely. Yeah, there's there uh, if you get on if like for instance on TikTok, right? There's all these people that post these live streams of themselves, and they're they're you know bashing capitalism, and it's and it's interesting to watch them. They have no clue what they're talking about. They have no economic history to work from. They have no basis from what they do. It's just stuff they've heard from other people, right? And they're just regurgitating all these same things over and over again, uh, thinking it's going to make a difference. But again, you see the number of, of you know individuals in their 20s and 30s still living at home with their parents. And, 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 and you know, just a little bit, my wife and I are going to go work out. And there's this great kid that works the front desk. He's 22 years old, super nice kid, super nice well-spoken, you know, lives at home with his parents, 22 years old. And I'm like, well, why, why are you doing that? He's like, well, it's like, you know, I get free meals. Why work, right? So he works at the gym and, and makes, you know, probably minimum wage. I don't know how much he makes, but, you know, the parents aren't doing their job of saying, hey, time to leave the nest, you know, go figure yeah. it out. And, and that, that's what I really want to dig into you. So we'll, we'll yeah. punt for this to next week. But there's, I think there's, you know, so a lot of people watching, because my job was not to depress people by bringing this topic back up here, but it's to say, look, there's a real problem and there are strategies to combat this if you are one of those people that is out of work, right? And then there's strategies that if your parents raising a kid that is facing this future and feeling really dejected by it, um, there are strategies that can help improve the outcome here. I mean, a lot of this is kind of like, Getting back to a lot of old school stuff, um, but uh, there, there is, you know, there's, there's, there's reason to hope here. This isn't, you know, a, a, a death sentence for your kid's career or a death sentence for your career. Um, but I think there's a lot of stuff that you and I have, Lance, that we've talked about a little bit in past um, uh, videos that we can really bring to bear here and maybe, maybe paint a an optimistic path. Put it that way for people. One thing I just want to say in closing on this topic is. He brought up a really great point about this around universal basic income, where he basically said, we have kind of a test case here of what people do when you give them time and passive income. And he basically said, nothing productive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, this, 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 this wasn't the focus of the conversation with him, but he's like, this is not something that we should be leaning into as a policy, right? It, it, it's a corrosive uh, influence. It is not an additive one to society. So for everybody out there who's saying, oh, you know, UBI is going to solve all our problems. We actually have a lot of evidence here that no, it actually just creates even, even more worse ones. Um, okay. So on that, um, we'll, we'll, we'll earmark that for next week. Um, so uh, folks, uh, thanks so much for watching Lance. Thanks again for yet another great week here, buddy. These are always super fun. Let me just remind people that um, 
all the things we talked about in this video, folks, are reasons why uh, we're so repetitive on this program to encourage people uh, to work with a, a, a trained financial advisor, trained financial professional advisor who understands all the macro issues that we've talked about here and can work with you uh, to take them onto account and to put together a good plan for you as we enter 2023. If you've got a good one and you're already working with them, great, stick with that. But if you don't, or if you'd like a second opinion of one who does, maybe even Lance and his team uh, at Real Investment Advisors, uh, we'll then set up a, a free consultation with them. Uh, these things are totally free, don't cost you any money. There's no commitment to work with them. Lance and his team and our other advisors just do it as a public service. Uh, to, to set one of those up, just go to wealthion.com, fill out the short form there. Um, and then, as I said earlier, I'm going to ask you to subscribe and like this channel here. Uh, help us get to 200,000 subscribers. Um, Lance, real quick in closing here, I'll share actually some, some good news. Uh, I'll put up a tweet here that I put out uh, the other day. I was spending some time late at night pulling some competitive information and was really pleasantly shocked to find that Wealthion, uh, we just had our best month ever, uh, best 30 days ever. Um, we had 3.9 million views, so almost 4 million views on this channel. If you compare us to Forbes, um, uh, The Economist, uh, Yahoo Finance, MarketWatch, um, we are actually getting pretty damn close to some of these big players. We're like 40 percent to like 75% of what some of these big national longtime brands are pulling on their own YouTube channels here. Uh, and folks, that's all for the help and support uh, that you've given this channel. Um, Lance, I want to thank you for being a big, important contributor to that process. Um, folks are definitely saying they're liking what they're seeing, would like to see more. So as we go into 2023, Lance, I really look forward to having you even more engaged on this channel. Um, but anybody else, to, to help us continue that momentum, please do us a favor and hit the like button. And if you haven't yet, click that red subscribe button, help us get to 2000. Click that little uh, bell icon right next to it too. So anyways, Lance, again, just want to thank you, buddy, as we wrap up here. Uh, my pleasure. It's always been fun. All right. Uh, we'll see you next week, Lance, and everybody else. Thanks so much for watching.